shows the emotion roadmap. Take the wheel and control how you feel. And I'm Chuck Wolf, and the show is about helping people understand how to deal with the challenges you face in life, whether it's at home or it's work or it's something that you're doing in the community where you're just uncertain how to proceed and you're just kind of figuring out what it is you do when you're struggling with your emotions because the Emotion Roadmap is about helping people deal with uncertainty, with self-doubt. Today I wanted to talk about changes because as uh, many of you who are regular listeners know, uh, WPKN, after many, many years of being at the University of Bridgeport, we're going to be moving to downtown Bridgeport. And what happens when you deal with change? And what are the, some of the implications of change? And how does change impact our lives? How does, it, how does it impact us when we're changing our relationships with people? How does it impact us when we change jobs with people, uh, you know, with uh, companies and the people that we work with and for? Uh, our people leave us, and changes are, are, are a result of somebody leaving a job where we've um, had them as part of a team that we're a part of for a long time. How do you deal with change? That's one of the things I wanted to chat about today. One of the reasons we're, we're going to be moving on is you know, this is a lot of equipment has been dated and the studio is uh, an old time radio studio. If you've ever had a chance to see it, it's uh, it kind of has a, uh, a really, really homey kind of atmosphere and uh, feels like something that's uh, a bit of a relic of the past, but still really functions at an extremely high level. It has a similar feeling to how I feel when I go to Fenway Park, one of the oldest ballparks in the world. But we're going to be going to a new domain soon and new relationships, new changes. And we're hoping that those changes are part of what you enjoy, uh, continuing to enjoy with with the station WPKN. I am uh, just also want to talk to you a little bit about what I've learned about change over the years as a way of opening the show. And the the idea of changes are interesting because uh, one of my good friends for a long time, um, over many years, is a fellow named Bob Roberti. And uh, I met Bob when I was working um, as the director of leadership development for Hartford Insurance. And Bob was a general, had been a general manager for the operation. And <laughs> he... Um, he had, uh, was looking for something that was less taxing, I guess, than general management and also a way to share all the knowledge he'd accumulated over many years. And he um, was looking at the possibility of doing um, something around leading and developing other people, up-and-coming general managers. And he and I ended up working together as a result of that. And as we experienced talking about uh, changes, one of the things that you, you want to think about when you're dealing with changes is... Who likes change? And one of the one of the ideas he came up with was, you know, as far as he could tell, if it's a change that you didn't ask for, the only person that or people that he knew that liked change were babies with wet diapers. That was that was his concept that he felt he, he led with when he talked to people about how it feels when an organization comes in and tells people, hey, we're about to make some changes. A lot of people are stuck with, you know, what works in the past is working now and why are we making any kind of change? If we can't do something different, if we really can't do something different, then we're probably going to stagnate and we're probably not going to grow and it's probably going to cost us and we may not get to stay and be a part of whatever it is that you're, you're involved with. And that's a problem. That is a problem and a concern. The idea of change in my uh, world has been um, introduced to me at different points at different times and in different ways. So initially, when I first started out, I was involved with change from a counseling perspective. I was trained as a counselor. I became a school counselor. I was a family counselor. 
I did family therapy for a number of years. I worked with a psychiatrist. I worked inside um, some institutions for people who were um, intellectually disabled, people with emotional disabilities, people who are sort of fit every category right in um, you know, an abnormal psychology textbook. Um, so it's, I've seen people who are trying to handle what's going on inside them and change to something better. As a counselor, that's what I help people with. And then I had the good fortune of working collaboratively with somebody in Harvard Business School. I got accepted to Harvard and worked in the executive program for management development at Harvard University in their business school. And I had the good fortune to work for a fellow named Tony Athos. One of the things that I learned at Harvard Business School was that when you want to introduce change and you want to do it successfully, I learned a few things from Tony, and I also had the uh, great privilege to work with a fellow named John Carter, who was considered the guru in Harvard Business School uh, for change. Uh, John's programs still exist out there, and some of you may know about his eight steps for ensuring that change works successfully. Making sure changes are successful um, involve making sure you have the right people involved, making sure you have enough attention to it. But Tony's, Tony's definition for change was a little bit more straightforward. He basically said for changes to be successful, you need a clear vision of the future, of what you want to change to. You need actually a compelling vision of the future, something that excites people when you tell them about it, that excites you when you think about it and talk about it, right? This is something that you really want to have that works for you going forward, that you can tell people about that. When you think about change, you want to excite people about the change you're talking about if you're in an organization. If I'm dealing with an individual or a couple or a family or a small group, um, I want to talk to them about what that change looks like for them as a team, as individuals, as a family, as a, as a, uh, in a marriage or a partnership of some kind. So when, when you're looking at that, the first very important aspect of dealing with change is that you have a vision that's compelling. Uh, a friend of mine introduced me to uh, this idea of it has to be teleological. I said, okay, that's important that it be teleological, but what does that mean? <laughs> and, and she said, it's like a moth to a light bulb or a flame. You want it to be something that is irresistible, that it's just something that's so powerful it compels people to want to achieve it. Well, that's exciting. And then how do you do that? Well, she said, um, there's and a couple of things that she and Tony and others have, have shared with me and that I believe is true is you need some concrete first steps that are measurable, that are excitable, that are something that you really um, can do, something concrete that's, that really feels like you can actually get something done that's meaningful, productive, and that you actually celebrate when you have milestones that you reach, that you accomplish, that you want, that, that take you on this pathway to achieving change and success. So you want a concrete first one, two, or three steps, at least one step, something clearly that puts you on the path that gives you a win early on in the change process. Because people get excited about change, but then if nothing happens or if nothing concrete happens, they begin to doubt whether the change is real or they begin to think less about it or to be less excited about it. And that's not helpful when you're dealing with change. So you want to know how to sort of spike people's emotions by having concrete wins at different times that you can note and celebrate 
when they happen. And the last thing, which is sort of a curious one, is you need the pressure to change. So when we look at WPKN, and you know, we had talked, I think, not uh, not infrequently, but not that often, about should we ever go someplace else? Should we be someplace else? Should we actually deal with uh, changes um, in terms of where we are located? Well, it was always an interesting idea, but never really generated a lot of enthusiasm necessarily. Uh, but then the University of Bridgeport changed hands, or it was starting to have some difficulties, and all of a sudden um, it wasn't clear that we were going to be able to stay here. And that's the pressure. You need some kind of pressure that's real to keep change from just kind of sitting in somebody's inbox and nothing really happening with it. Because when the pressure's real and you have to change, then having a concrete step towards a powerful, compelling vision is a formula for success. Now, there's a lot of other things that go into it, but that's true for individuals and it's also true um, for organizations. Now, um, I don't know if any of you are dealing with changes, but in terms of how that impacts the emotion roadmap, the emotion roadmap is all about the emotional component. And one of the things that's really fascinating to me is that this fellow, John Carter, who is famous for uh, change management uh, applications and theories and interventions, who studied multiple change interventions and He's a, he was a kind of a data geek and um, was one of the best people at an analysis of data that I've ever met. And uh, that was impressive because he, he was considered one of the best at Harvard Business School. And obviously, that's a, that's a huge success. Um, but the idea of changes were often about quantitative measurements that he tracked and quantitative um, quantitative analysis that he did that gave him some insights into changes. But over the years, one of the things he discovered, interestingly enough, is that if you don't pay attention to emotions, that actually many change efforts fail because of the lack of attention to emotions. How are people feeling that are being impacted? Which takes us all the way back to my friend Bob Roberti, who said that the only people that want change to happen when it's not their own idea to change, it's perhaps a baby with a wet diaper. Most of us are sometimes comfortable, at least, with changes we want to initiate ourselves. But it, it's often uncomfortable to be on the end of the uh, idea of a change happening that we're told has to happen that impacts us that we have no controls over. And one of the things people in organizations at least experience around changes is that the initial thought or the first time they hear that a change is going to happen organizationally, uh, many things run through people's minds. Things like, um, hey, how does that impact me? How does it impact the people I care about? Will I still be the person in charge of this unit? Will I still be part of this team? If I'm an introvert, will I still have the same people that I, I know, that I like, that I've learned to... Be, to enjoy being with? Or do I have to make new relationships? Um, will we stay in the same location? Will there be a move involved? Will it be farther from my home? Will the commute be harder, more difficult, more challenging? Um, will I report to someone I don't like or don't know and don't respect? Will the person who I report to not like me, not respect me? Will I still have a job? Will some of the people I care about here still have it? I mean, so those are lots of questions that happen 
when changes are announced in organizations and you're not part of the leadership team who's been discussing the changes. And even, by the way, in the leadership team, not everybody is always comfortable with the changes because often when changes are announced, you think you have a clear plan, but there are things that happen that cause you to make some changes along the way in terms of what you thought you were going to be able to do. So I was talking to our general manager today, and it sounds like we're probably going to be moving maybe towards the um, the end of September as a possibility, and that could move again. But it's, you know, it's there's lots of things to do when you're making changes, some of which you anticipate very well, and some are surprises. Some go very easily, as you had hoped, and then some appear uh, to be more challenging and are extremely difficult even at times. So any change that you might be making in your own lives has a lot to do with how you're feeling about what's going on. And how you're feeling about what's going on is about the emotion roadmap, at least for me, and for all those of you who are regular listeners. And for those of you that are tuning in for the first time, the show's about helping you deal with some emotional challenges. And I thought I'd introduce the theme of change today because Part of it was something I was thinking about when I was thinking about, at some point, I won't be coming to the University of Bridgeport anymore. When I take my ride, it'll be going downtown uh, right near where the Bijou is, if you know downtown Bridgeport at all. So this is uh, something that we're all going to have to get used to, those of us who program and work at the station. And uh, looking forward to it. Sounds very exciting. Offers new alliances, new opportunities for people to interact with us in different ways that may not have been available in our home here for the last 50 plus years. So this is a, this is a chance for change to happen for us. And I also know that many of you probably are, challenge, are challenged by some of the changes you're experiencing now because... People going back to school and having kids. And, you know, I, I can't turn on the news without hearing about should or shouldn't kids wear masks in schools. Um, should we have any more remote learning at all? Should there continue to be social distancing? So that's in schools. Then there's the whole question about our companies going back to um, as much organizational space that they need. Or are they going to have many more people sharing offices and spending perhaps three days at home and two days in the workplace? I think people, many people at least, value the idea of being in a workplace and being able to see people in person. Uh, but they also found that they could be quite productive with um, tools like Teams or WebEx or Zoom. Um, you know, there's there's lots of ways people have learned they can be productive without necessarily having to take a commute every day. Um, so how is that changing your workplaces? So there's a lot of change going on in workplaces right now. And then there's the whole idea of trying to get staff for businesses. I don't know if you've stayed at the hotel lately. My wife and I have. And I can't tell you about every hotel I talk to because I that sometimes customers of mine are hotel uh, experiences. And um, one of the things that they're saying is they can't get staff. Now, while the handouts from the government have been wonderful, in many cases, they've kept people alive and, and, and allowed people to feed their families. Uh, they also, at the same time, have uh, stopped some people um, from going back to work because it's like, uh, if, if I'm only going to make a couple dollars more by going back to work than what I'm getting from the state and the federal government in terms of what I'm getting to stay at home, and I can do things in my home that benefit the home and my family, I mean, I think a lot of people are making the choice that I'd just soon stay home, right? 
But now those subsidies are going to be ending pretty soon. And then people are going to be faced with going back to work. And so I think as if you're paying attention to the economic scene in our country, there's many, many jobs that need to be filled. And um, uh, I hope that those jobs get filled. Hopefully with your own companies, if you're a small business owner or a large business owner and you're involved in changes, perhaps this will be helpful to you to think about how the emotion roadmap might may, uh, may make a meaningful positive difference in your efforts to have a successful change effort. So here's one of the ways to think about that. A while back, I was asked to intervene in a, in a company where it was, um, oh, I can tell you the name of the company, it was the Opryland Hotel. And if you've ever been in Nashville, Tennessee, you know the Opryland is an amazing property. Uh, it goes on and on forever. It's kind of like a maze. <laughs> it's really kind of hard to figure out sometimes where to go in the property. But it is a beautiful, amazingly beautiful property. It has lots of music, um, entertainment, bars, restaurants, great hotel rooms, and it's in a great location in Nashville, Tennessee. So if you are a fan of music in general, and specifically country and country rock music, I think you'll find... Um, the Gaylord, a wonderful, amazing property. Well, at one point in time, the property owners, by the way, the Gaylord is now owned by Marriott. So if you're uh, a Marriott uh, member uh, and you belong to the Marriott group, uh, the Bonvoy group, you can use points to stay there. Uh, Gaylord was a set of properties that was a standalone for a period of time, but then was purchased um, uh, by the Marriott organization. Anyway, at the time I was called in, I was friendly with the chief operating officer of the Gaylord. I'd done a lot of work with him over the years. And um, I was called in to ask if I would run what was called a SWOT analysis. SWOT, for those of you that aren't in organizations uh, where you use this term, it stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And what a SWOT analysis does is it asks key people in your organization at different levels to come together and to share what they see as the strengths of your organization and the strengths of your key competitors, the weaknesses of your organization and the weaknesses of your competitors, and the opportunities for your organization, same for competitors, and the threats to your organization, same for competitors. So in other words, you're trying to do a market um, assessment of where you are, what you're capable of doing, and um, what what is currently happening in your world, and what you think is likely to happen over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. So it's not necessarily strategic in terms of a five-year outlook. It's looking ahead one to two years. And in this case, what I was asked to do, and, and the reason I was asked to do it, was because the organization was looking to become a top destination as a convention center for large groups of people that spend lots of money finding destinations to take their either professional members or their organizational members to, uh, to bring them together, partly to celebrate their successes, partly to innovate and be creative, partly to strategize and, and learn new technologies and other um, opportunities for understanding how to grow the company, um, but often just to bring everyone together to have that chance to create that strong sense of belonging that's so powerful in organizations. And so when you are someone who is 
in the business, you know that there are people that are called meeting planners that arrange with different places and all around the world, really, to take your group there. So you might be a group of dentists that, you know, professional dentistry. Uh, you might be um, a large company like um, United Technologies or General Electric or, um, or uh, Disney or Exxon. Um, Exxon Mobil, you, you might be any one of a number of different kinds of companies or associations. You might be individu- uh, independent small business people. So again, there's a lot of different kinds of groups that go together for these kinds of con- conventions. It's a very profitable business, but it's only successful if your, cus- your attention to customer service is absolutely amazing, right? Because any meeting planner that has a group of people show up there at a particular organization, and they don't have an amazing, wonderful experience, they go back and they say, oh, you know, that wasn't all it was supposed to be. And that wasn't, wasn't what it was going to be as advertised. It wasn't what it was cracked up to be. I mean, I thought it wasn't nearly as good as last year's. I really felt disappointed. You never want to hear that as a meeting planner. You always want to hear, oh, my God, that was fantastic. Those people treated us so great. And I enjoyed the meeting. The, plus, of course, part of the success of a meeting is the content and the meetings themselves. But you want the operation, that the facility that you join with, to do everything possible that it can to make it uh, uh, the kind of organizational experience that people say we were extremely welcome. We were made to be very comfortable. And boy, did we feel important. Anytime we needed anything, people were there in a moment's notice, and people were working on things and turned things around faster than any of us could even believe. We were so pleased with the service, the accommodations. Um, the food was wonderful. Uh, the nighttime experience was great. You know, So all these things were helped that make a difference in terms of what they want when a meeting planner seeks you out as a possible change destination. Now, the other thing that matters is location. So a lot of people want to go to Orlando. That's one of the key destinations in the world. Uh, Lots of people like going to Las Vegas, another key destination. Uh, Another one is London and Paris and Tokyo. Uh, These are seen as world-class destinations. Nashville, Tennessee wasn't and probably still isn't in that conversation. If you're going to the southeastern part of the United States, the Gaylord property in Nashville, the Opryland Hotel, is the place you go. I mean, not always. There's a great Sheraton there, too. And um, I mean, there's other properties. But a lot of times, the premier destination for most folks is the Opryland Hotel. And so when you're thinking about that, these people wanted to compete with the Tokyos, with the Londons, Las Vegas, and Orlando's, and so forth. And New York City, by the way. And so those were things that they wanted to somehow be in the same conversation. And they wanted the SWOT analysis to help them to figure out how to get there. Now, that all makes a lot of sense, except I didn't understand why they would ask me to do it. Now, I'm very talented at what I do, and I'm very good at skilled at bringing those kind of conversations um, to life and, and helping people get there. So I wasn't, I wasn't surprised because of the competence that I have. But I was more kind of surprised because they have a whole group of people that are sort of like the Gaylord University was the name of the group at the time. And they had a lot of people with similar credentials to mine. And I thought, you could have done this with your own people. Why are you asking for outside help? And what they said was interesting. They said that, you know, the, the, this was a fairly new senior leadership team in this. Uh, they had turned over the previous general manager and the 
uh, operations manager and the finance manager for the property. So a lot of the people that had been in charge were now gone. They'd been out for about six months, and this was a new management team, essentially. And the old management team had been very autocratic, and if you don't recognize what that means, it means that they would often tell people what they wanted them to do, not ask. They would get people to do things through fear more than through nurture. They did not typically empower people. And if people had ideas about how room service could be better, how, um, how the restaurants or entertainment or the front desk could be better, they didn't want to hear it unless it was their ideas. And if anyone criticized anything being done by the senior leadership team, then they would actually have the experience of being either embarrassed, um, you know, put down publicly by one of the leaders, or even asked to leave if, if it got repeated. Or they just were left anyway because they realized that they wanted to be in an organization where everybody mattered, everybody was cared about, everybody was important, and everybody was valued and respected, and that wasn't happening with the previous administration. Now, these folks came in and said, hey, we're different. We're going to value and respect you. In fact, that's one of the reasons we want to do this. But we felt like we needed somebody from the outside because any of the people associated with the old regime probably couldn't get people to tell the truth the way we needed them to tell the truth. So we'd really get some real information that we could use. So that was how I was brought into this. And they wanted me to do in two days to bring together all these people. A SWOT analysis is usually a two or three day event. And I said to them, I said, emotionally... I think people have shut down. Now you're coming in and telling them that you're safe, that you're going to value their input. I doubt that the people who were here before you said that people shouldn't be safe and that they didn't value them. I doubt that they, anybody ever said that. They probably said something similar to what you're telling folks. And yet they didn't act that way. So why would people believe you now? So if you're just catching up, let me try to kind of rehash this a bit. I was called in to work with a, a very large property in the southeastern part of the country of the United States. It was the um, Gaylord Opryland Hotel, a beautiful property. They wanted to compete with the best convention centers around the world. Those are places from Las Vegas, um, Las Vegas and New York City and London, Paris, Tokyo, and so forth. And those are places that when meeting planners with large budgets and wanting to take their people to the very best of all locations, not just places, but locations. Um, those are places people want to go. They don't typically think Southeastern United States. If they are, for whatever reason, wanting to go to that region, the Opryland is the number one property typically seen as the best convention center in that area. But they wanted to be talked about in the same conversations were, hey, what's the best place in the world to go this year? They wanted Nashville to be in that conversation. And they wanted their property to be that that good, that desirable, that meeting planners, anytime they were looking at what's the best place we can go, that they were in the conversation. So that sort of takes you where we are. The problem that they were experiencing was that the previous administration that they had, the general manager and his senior team, um, had been very autocratic, very dogmatic, and 
Um, and people felt disrespected and devalued at the property anytime they spoke up and had a different idea than what was told to them by the management team. And now they, the new team said, we're going to be better than the old team, and we're going to make you feel valued, and we want to know what you think and what, you care, what, what your thoughts are about how we survive and how we thrive and how we, how we raise our, our ability to you know, really just enter into the top flight convention center destinations. How do we do that? We want your help in figuring that out. Great goal, by the way. Uh, but the team that was in place, the several thousand people that work there, um, had a history of hearing those words from other leadership teams and none of it being real. So why would it be real now? And so when they asked me to come in and help, I said, look, let me explain how the emotion roadmap works. You have people feeling a certain way they're distrusting. They have felt disrespected, devalued. And now you're coming in and you're hoping that they're going to be trusting, that somehow you're going to make them feel valued and respected by taking them through this process. And yet the history of what they've experienced is that others have said similar things. And the people that believed that they were going to be respected and valued and shared their insights and their thoughts that were different than what the leaders might have thought were punished for that. Some actually either forced out or just left on their own because they didn't want to work in a company that disrespected its employees the way they felt they were being disrespected. I said, emotionally, the people, the several thousand people you have here are not going to be in a place where they're going to give you the truth when you ask them to talk to you about weaknesses and threats. Sure, they'll tell you what they think of as strengths because you want to hear that. You know, and, and they might be willing to share where they think there are opportunities as long as they don't feel like they cross any lines where they're giving senior people a message that says you haven't capitalized on those opportunities. So they have to be thoughtful about how they share those. And so you might not get that to be real either. And I think you're just going to have a lot of silence no matter who does this for you, whether it's an outsider like me or somebody inside. So they said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, I what I suggested is that they that they think about how they want people to feel and they start to focus on creating those feelings first. And one way we could do that is by bringing people in and asking them to talk only about what they're proud of about this organization and what they'd love to see in the future for this organization in terms of how they want to feel about it and how they want customers to feel about it. And all you want to focus this on is the positives that are, um, that are part of what would make this in the most amazing place in the world to work. Because I think you can get that from people. I think, you can, I think you can capture that in a way that doesn't threaten them. Because now you're just talking about, hey, what would life be like if and this is one of the things that actually happened in that in that meeting because they, they, they took my idea and they ran with it. And we actually, instead of two days, we worked for six months. But we got some great information and we turned the culture around in a way that people felt respected and valued. And they felt like it was a much better place to work at the end of six months. And they felt that the management team was real when they said that we're going to, you can trust us, that we're going to value and respect you. But it took six months. And it cost a lot more than what they thought they were going to pay. But they got the results that they wanted by paying attention to emotions. And that's what I started to say. When John Carter, who was from Harvard Business School and somebody I got to know when I used to work there, uh, when he discovered after years of quantitative analysis and being absolutely brilliant at writing about all the reasons organizations fail at change, 
discovered that one of the key elements that he had been missing and he felt was absolutely critical to all of it was emotional intelligence and emotional understanding, dealing with the emotions people actually felt as opposed to what you hoped they felt. And creating the emotions that you wanted for the, for the uh, intervention, the change intervention to, to succeed. To make people feel like they wanted to contribute in ways that felt empowering and beneficial and supportive and valuing. And that's what we worked on. We worked on that for six months. We, we got, they were convinced that once we started to see, you know, one of the things that we, the way we approached it was, what would life be like if it was like the best possible version of a place like this? What would it be like for you? What would the emotional culture be like? And that's one of the things we worked on that was really interesting to me. I hope to you, because what I tried to tell you in this story is that if you don't pay attention to emotions, no matter what kind of change you're dealing with, whether it's at home, in your community, or in your, in your organizations, you have a much higher degree uh, chance of failing than if you do pay attention to the emotions in play. And when you do recognize that the emotions that you want people to experience are not the ones they're having, you may just find that um, you're, you're wanting to do it in a very timely fashion and in days instead of months may not be possible. But the reality is you can push and push and push, and if the emotions are wrong, you're not going to get where you want to go. It's part of what I do for a living is I help people with organizational change, with individual change. Uh, a lot more of what I do these days is with individual leaders and helping them through leadership coaching. And uh, a lot of that's about how do they change to be the best possible versions of themselves. And that's what I'm hoping I help everybody that's listening with as well. Hi, this is Chuck. You're on the air. Who am I talking to, please? Uh, my name is Luke. Uh, Luke, did you say? Uh, yes, Luke. Oh, thanks for calling, Luke. Uh, what would you yeah, like was- to share? I just happened to be listening to PKN and picked up the picked up your uh, your program. Very interesting. Um, for years, I've been a technology leader, uh-huh. and um, I think when I started, I probably focused on the technology, the ones and zeros. All we had to do is deliver a great system, and everyone would use it. Um, but in time, I've certainly learned uh the the failures of most of the large change projects because you know that's that's the hard part um is really in the people and bringing them along and i'm i'm curious in from your perspective of why it's such a latent capability in in so many executives and senior leaders in these organizations um there's this propensity for them to say well you know here's here's the north star um, this is what we're going to do. Now everybody do it. So they kind of focus on the strategy, they focus on the execution, but they so so rarely focus on the people and really appreciating that if you don't bring them along, no matter how good the change is for them or the system is for them, that it's just not there. Is it, is it, a, is it a gap in the business schools? Is it, uh, is it some kind of native flaw in the human uh, dynamic? 
So that's my question. It's a great question, Luke. Uh, So my experience with this is, um, uh, you know, just really (laughs) uh, supports what you're just saying, that it's it's so often the case that what people in who have gotten to the levels that you've apparently risen to in your career um, often are rewarded because of their technical expertise, their strategic vision for their organizations, uh, and their capability to relate to what the business can do for the people above you or alongside you and that's where you get rewarded and yet the people in you know time and again whether it's Gallup or others doing the organizational research when people say what do we want our leaders to be better at in technology and other fields as well it's that we want them to understand what we need from them that we want to feel valued that we want to be respected that we want to be developed that we want to be empowered and yet what I mean that's not anything new it's been out there a long time, but because I think the whole world of emotional intelligence is a very confused world, in my experience, that, that we have a lot of definitions. If you Google it, you'll find a million different vendors and lots of different theories, and we think of it as mostly just about being nicer to people, when in fact it's everything. It's everything we do has an emotional consequence. We don't think about it, and we don't know how to deal with it, so I think because we're uncomfortable and it's not something that is we're taught and it's not easy to understand. And there are a few people I think that communicate the way I do about emotional intelligence is everywhere. And it's always, we're always feeling something. It's just that the most of the time we don't really think about our feelings unless they're almost overwhelming us. But I think it's, it is possible to learn this stuff. Luke, partly why I do the show is I, I hope to give away the skill in, in the 12 years I've been doing the show. But I think a lot of people think it's just about being nice and it's so much more. If you can under, I mean, you do already understand that it's just not about, you know, the ones and the zeros. And it's not just about the systems and the strategy. It is about the skills and it is about the people. And it is, and when, and that's one of the things Carter discovered. John Carter was brilliant at this stuff and people looked at him as a guru. I mean, he got fifty thousand. I maybe still does fifty thousand dollars to go speak someplace, you know, just to talk and say the same things you could read about. But they so admired what he wrote about and talked about. But it wasn't about emotion until in more recent years he discovered one of the things that he never spent time thinking about was how are people feeling and how people feel are enormously consequential in whether or not you're going to be successful. And so I think it's more recent. I think some business schools are starting to understand it, but they teach emotional intelligence, in my experience, as a separate theory, almost as an academic theory. And it's not, they don't make the connection about what I just shared, which is you want me to come in and do a SWOT analysis for you when everybody that's in your organization that's left has had the experience of any time they've spoken up and said something that the management team didn't agree with, they were either punished or even let go. So why would anyone do that that was left and understood the consequence of making a mistake here and trusting your leadership team when the other leadership team said something quite similar, I'm sure, to you? And that's the key is like, how do you turn that around? And that's it's fascinating. One of my good friends is a fellow from Australia. He's just created a tool um, called an emotional culture app, actually, that you can measure the emotional culture in your organization pretty simply, actually. And uh, it's pretty powerful. And uh, I think I think we're moving towards a better understanding of this, Luke. But it, uh, we're we're well aware. <laughs> we're, I mean, considering how we've known about this for a long time, uh, I think we're still pretty far behind in trying to really um, maximize what's possible in terms of having organizations where people feel highly valued and highly respected. There are some out there, but they're rare. Yeah. Thank you. I find that, you know, in the boardroom too often, the 
the metrics, the, the return on investment is, is measured in what people can tangibly see. If we reduce costs, we'll make more. If we increase sales, we'll make more. And, and I find the, the EQ side of things, the, the human side of things, because you can't quantify it in the same way, it's not as much a discussion. They, they, the executives often feel like they don't control it or can control it. And I think it's a lack of, maybe it's a lack of skill capability. Maybe it's just a general lack of awareness. Maybe it's just low EQ. But so much of the conversation is focused on, is focused on these, um, what would I say, more traditional metrics of success. Well, I think you need the metrics that you're talking about. Obviously, you do. Um, there is research out there that says, for instance, trust. When there's high trust in organizations and they compare to a number of interesting studies that show that when, when an organization has high trust, then obviously people feel like they can take more risk, they can be more innovative. Um, and they um, often, when they feel high trust, they also will stay later and make sure that the quality of their work is better. And, and they've demonstrated that in a few studies. It's not powerful enough data yet. But I think this new tool that I've been uh, just recently um, started to use, this emotional culture inventory, is another way of measuring an aspect. And if you can tie that to the other metrics, you know, the number of sales, the profitability, the productivity, if you can show that emotional cultures that are highly beneficial are better than similar organizations with similar demographics than other organizations. I think you got, I think you, I think we're starting to find tools that will turn to push us in the right direction. But you know, people, people care mostly, honestly, in, in organizational life, in my experience about power and wealth <laughs> and, uh, and they don't, not, not necessarily interested in, in so much in making everybody in the organization feel respected and valued. But those, those leaders that do, they create a following and people want to, people want to work for them. They want to know where they're going next and whether they can follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Well, thanks for the phone call, Luke. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Chuck Wolf. You've been listening to the Emotion Roadmap. Take the wheel and control how you feel.